Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. My name is Richard Browning. I'm the founder and chief test pilot from Gravity, and I'm here to share some of our story. Uh, welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Talk, and uh, I'll hand back over to Jonathan. Thank you very much indeed, Richard. I've enjoyed watching um, your work as a, a test pilot, as a founder, as an inventor. My uncle was a test pilot with the Navy. My father was a fast jet pilot with the Navy. Both, unfortunately, were killed doing what they were doing. Um, one died at 29 and one at 33. So what you do has great resonance for me. And I, I really want to just say congratulations. You know, it's gone out. You've done 144 events in 35 countries. You've been watched by over a billion people. It's clearly something that really captures people's imagination. And you've been called Iron Man and various other things. So congratulations all you do. Tell us a bit about what you're doing at the moment, if you would, Richard. Yeah, so I mean, as I sit here now, we are four and a bit years into a journey that started with this vision of could you reimagine human flight? Could you add the missing component, you know, horsepower and use your brain from a balanced point of view and your body as a flight structure? You know, it still sounds crazy describing it now. Uh, we've done 140 events over that. Uh, if I just came back today from a military one, hence some of the military gear I'm wearing. Um, 140 events in 35 countries. And we've got a, a whole entertainment division and now a professional division about special forces mobility and paramedic response as well. And yeah, I can't quite believe how we built such a successful business out of a seemingly crazy idea. Yeah. And uh, where did the idea come from? When, when, how, how did you have it? Because you used to work for, for BP. You were doing a very busy job there. You've been in the Royal Marines Reserves. You've, you've had a very interesting life. But where did it come from? Just one day you woke up and thought, oh, I'll just design this. Yeah, I, I think in hindsight, it was a whole bunch of different inspirations. I mean, my whole family was from the world of aviation and engineering. One grandfather was a wartime aviator and civil aviator. My other grandfather was Sir Basil Blackwell. He used to run Western helicopters back in the day. It's now Leonardo's. Um, my late father was an aeronautical engineer and maverick creator. Um, and I spent many a happy hour building and making and taking things apart with him. Uh, and I suppose the Royal Marines taught me a lot about human capability, it gives you that idea or wakes you up to that realization that human beings are amazing machines that can be trained to do, you know, a huge variety of different things. Um, so that's a part of it. And then, yeah, as a child, I used to spend a lot of time making little model aircraft and things like that. So I think if you put all that in a pot, with a very strong bias towards going after interesting challenges, especially ones where people say, oh, I probably can't be done. I love those. I'm used to the fact that 19 out of 20 times, roughly, they're right. But I do it for the joy of finding that one in 20 time when it turns out they're not. Um, so, yeah, I, it was an it was accumulation of a bunch of inspirations, I think. Yeah. And it's lovely hearing about I, I've forgotten you know, as you talk about inventors and family, I've forgotten that my uncle uh, was an inventor, I think. I, I'll get the, the name wrong, but TSR2, anyway, the sort of supersonic jet that they were going to invent, a bit like Concorde. He was one of the inventors on that. My oh, grandfather wow. was an inventor and great-grandfather. So, But I, I'm not, but you are. And so I, I love uh, hearing your story. In the various films that I've seen of you taking off destroyers and, and from landing craft and all sorts, what's been the most fun bit you've done and also the hairiest thing you've done? 
Yeah, I mean, we, you know, you name a country, you name a, an object um, that, you know, we've probably flown to or from it. Um, often those events, a bit like I think being a racing driver, not that I've been a Formula One racing driver or anything, but I think, I think whilst on the outside they look extremely fun, you are actually doing an important job that you don't want to go and mess up. Um, it's very intuitive flying these, but you still just want to deliver the exercise or the event safely and uh, professionally. Afterwards, when it's all gone very well, and I have to say we, they really haven't ever failed in 140 goes, um, it's great because you can sit back and enjoy the wonderful footage of flying around an aircraft carrier or flying around a mountaintop or whatever it was. Uh, occasionally, we do filming exercises or test our own test flights and things where there's not a load of cameras off Mars. Then it's really fun. You can just kind of relax into it. And if I'm really honest, the actual feeling of what it's like, it is a bit like that dream that some people have of flying where you're kind of walking or running and then you just step and you just keep going and you can go wherever your mind takes you. Like when you're skiing or snowboarding or riding a bike, you're, you're free, although in two dimensions with that. In this case, you have that third dimension. In fact, the five axes really, when you think about it. And your brain and your body are in such synchron, you know, synchronization that you really can just look at where you want to go and you just go there. I mean, it's, it's as unconsciously simple as riding a bike. And yet actually there's quite a lot going on to try and keep you above the center of mass and all this sort of stuff. But your inner ear and your balance system, which you can have you running across a tussocky field without falling over, is more than capable for coping with that um, challenge. So it is a truly awesome experience. Uh, yeah. But as I say, the boring answer is slightly you want to execute the task efficiently. Uh, like today, I had a very senior leadership group from the uh, MOD civil service. Um, I won't mention exactly who they are, but very senior people. And it was storm, whatever. I forgot the name of the storm today. And it was gusting 45 mile an hour wind, driving rain. I kind of like that, though, because it shows how effective this is. And I came through the trees and just sat there completely motionless while they were being buffeted around by the wind, standing there watching me. And that was quite fun. But again, it's nice just to deliver what's required, and uh, you know, not not um, have any problems starting up or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you got it. You, you're based in Salisbury. But you've now got a completely effective and financially viable business. What What do you see the the future? I mean, there's so many things, and some of them you can't even talk about. But what do you see the future of um, you know gravity industries and the product that you've got, this Iron Man product? What What do you think we can do with it? Just in in the things that you can tell us about. Yeah. So, you know, if I reflect back, I started down this journey with no desire to build a business out of it at all. I just thought it would be a really interesting challenge to see if you could overcome the roughly half a dozen reasons why this in theory shouldn't be possible. You know, the sort of conventional wisdom that you couldn't carry enough fuel, be too hot, you'd have gyroscopic momentum kind of fighting you and all this kind of stuff. But having got it to work, it had such a profound effect on people who saw it live. We thought, well, why don't we just go and take this actually out of the box? And I got invited to do TED and then started all these events. And actually, it was a great way of getting out there and, and showing people what we've done and learning what, what it meant to people. And there's, you know, I mean, gosh, in the, in the pre-COVID days, you'd have people come up to you, give you a hug with literally tears in their eyes with this profound effect on them, seeing a human move in such a, an uncanny way that didn't look real. It's the most mm. fake looking thing that isn't fake, which is quite cool. Um, so have, off the back of that, we've now built all these, you know, this, this training capability. We used to do it in LA. We're back opening that up soon. Uh, we've done four, 500 people or so in the UK as well. And there's lots of demand around the world for setting up other flight experience and flight training centers. They can be the feeder for our race series. Um, alongside that, lots of branded entertainment event kind of stuff, which is always good revenue and gets you in front of interesting audiences. I mean, Zuckerberg, Musk, Bezos, Branson, all of them have seen it in various different events or private gatherings. And it's a privilege to meet those kind of people. 
Um, but but as I say, alongside the entertainment side of this, which shouldn't be dismissed, because I mean, what's Formula One at the end of the day? It's mostly entertainment and it leaves a trickle of follow on technology. But um, the professional division, the paramedic response, the equivalent of a an aeronautical paramedic on a motorbike cutting through the traffic to provide, apply critical first care, as we've done in the Lake District in Dartmoor, turns out to be an enormous value i mean we were getting to the casualty in 25 um it took 25 minutes to walk there and we were getting there in 90 seconds so when somebody's heart stopped or they're you know got a major bleeding problem or something then that turns out to be very valuable uh, that's really accelerating quite fast now um and then a close relation maybe you're just not being quite so friendly is the special forces and royal marines activity and every time we dive into a tactical scenario for instance maritime boarding or um ambush response and things like that it turns out we can do stuff that no one ever imagined possible. So that's a really important part of our business as well. And in a weird way, they kind of feed each other. Because if I'm really honest, you know, whether it's a kid or a, you know, older person watching one of our, you know, military clips, then they think, oh my god, it looks like Iron Man. And actually, we are doing this for real. Uh, and often the military opportunities come from probably the kids of the military leaders going, oh, hang on a minute, isn't this useful? Uh, and yeah, it's an amazing business that's got this diversity of um, yeah, yeah. Uh, of, of, of uh, activity, and yet they all feed each other and teach us constantly what more is possible. Very interesting. And so, with you meeting all these different people from Branson's to Bezos's, how do you keep humble and human in this, Richard? Because you could get really quite carried away. Here you are, an inventor. Mm. Everybody's seeing you, been seen by so many. What keeps your feet literally on the ground when you're taking off? Yeah, we never lose sight of the risk of what we're doing. I mean, to be clear, this system can't fail upwards. So there's no gyro or computer that could suddenly go crazy, accelerate the engines and do that to an extent that you can't vector away. So this is vectored thrust flying. So if you flare your arms to the side, you come down. So that's a nice element to the safety of this. But I was beyond that, you know, you are still doing something, I don't know, like racing a motorbike in some ways where if you get it wrong, it's going to hurt. And because I came from the technical side of this, you know, and I've got my team all around me now that do most of the build work, um, I'm never losing sight of all the little details behind the scenes that can go wrong to mean you don't start up on time, you look like an idiot, something goes wrong, you know, you have a fueling problem or whatever. So you are humbled by the reality of the technology. I think if I, again, the motor racing analogy would be if I just wafted in and the car was prepared and, you know, and I, and I just happen to be a good driver and I keep winning, well, I, I think I'd get quite arrogant. This is all very easy and brilliant. If I'm actually staying awake the night before to, you know, rebuild the gearbox, I'm probably a slightly more grounded, humble individual for, and all the better for it because I know what's gone into actually making that possible. I like to think I'm more of the latter. Yeah. And, and you talked a little bit about your relations. Who, who made you or who shaped you into the inventor, the founder, the um, chief test pilot that you are today? Was there mm. some, I mean, you partly alluded to your father, but, but who else shaped you as you, you grew up? Yeah, so I, I think the majority of my father, so my father was an aeronautical engineer, a real Mavic creator, as I mentioned. Um, he, he gave up a pretty good day job to go and pursue an idea, actually about mountain bike suspension. If you remember the days when mountain bikes didn't have suspension, it seems hard to imagine now. Uh, he was one of the pioneers of that. He had all the right technical ideas. He didn't have surrounding him the best business minds. And over my early teens, I just watched his dream gradually crumble and it ultimately cost him his life as he took his own life when I was 15 oh, through God. that failed fail business venture. So I had the mother of all demonstrations of, yes, be, you know, passionate, excitable, driven to ask what if and go down those untrod pathways, untrodden pathways. 
but I had a really good sanguine lesson in what happens when it doesn't work out. So my whole mantra, my whole ethos, I was on stage earlier today talking about this, that innovation is about risk. You have to go and do things that might not work out. The simple rule is make those failures that come with risk survivable. And I mean that from a financial reputation and safety perspective. This is our daily you know, ethos here. We will try the most ludicrous of things as long as we're happy we can physically uh, reputationally and safe, uh, and financially get back up again from the relentless little failures we have in the pursuit of the better. It's a, it's a message corporates are terrible at consuming. They try and eliminate all risk. I know this. I was in a big organization for 16 years. Um, if you're running a trading book, you can't eliminate all risk because you have no positions. You stop and then nothing happens. You have to have a portfolio of, of risk positions where you've ass- assessed the worst case scenario for each of them. And you know that even if all of them happen, you're still going to be able to fight another day. And that's our ethos. And I think that sadly sort of came from my childhood experience where I never lost the passion that drove him, but I also inherited this horrendous lesson in Mm. it can all go wrong. It's not this starry eyed fire Richard Branson book, just never give up and it will come good eventually. It doesn't sometimes. No, no. And, and, and I just want to acknowledge, I can't imagine how tough it was age 15 having your father kill himself. Um, I, I say this having, as you heard, my father get killed, he got was killed flying, but like a uh, goose in Top Gun, his buccaneer, he got the co-pilot out, the blade on the turbine had split and broke off on the Mark I buccaneer, took out the um, the fuel systems, which caught fire. There were the fire going, he was bringing it in in Changi in Singapore. And his last words were, I'm bringing it in, we need to check this out. He then had to eject because the fire had taken over the whole cockpit. Uh, and it killed him, sending him into the tailpiece. So, so I've come across a number of people whose fathers have been killed or killed themselves. Or there's a guy I was interviewing the other day from Ethiopia whose father had been taken by the regime who took over from the Emperor Haile Selassie. And he never, never saw his father ever again. Assumes mm. now, 40 years later, that he was killed. Um, but there seems to be some drive in those people. And you've got an incredible amount of drive in what you're doing. I don't know what your thoughts are about, you know, when you... When you have mm. someone you care about that, that is killed or dies, uh, that there is some drive in there to, to, to make a difference. Yeah, I, I mean, firstly, I think when, when you have a real kind of tragedy like that, especially when you're at a sort of formative age, I, I certainly felt there was an immediately a Y junction in life. There was the, the, the sort of easy route, as it were, where everybody around me was allowing me to be the victim. And, you know, I could just take time off school and I could just take a backseat from life, frankly, and everybody would not criticize me for that. Um, but that didn't look very appealing. I went down the other route, which was to run at every challenge going. I used to be afraid of heights. I used to be quite introverted and shy. Within six, nine months, I was, I was rock climbing. I was canoeing. I was doing everything I was scared of. I got a real interest in the military. Um, I just took life by the horns. Um, I could say something else instead of horns Um, (laughs) uh, and just ran hard at it. Now you could say maybe I was running away, but um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I think I just felt to an extent that one of the worst things that can happen to a kid had happened and I was still there and therefore everything else around me didn't look very scary anymore. It's like, what are you, what are you going to do to me? Right. And actually you also get a very, very early wake up call in life is finite and there for the taking. And I think you mix all that into a pot and you go, you know what, we're all, we're all fleshy human beings that get up in the morning, have breakfast. I I'm one of them. I think I can take on most of what you put in front of me. Let's have a go. You know, why did I join the Royal Marines reserve alongside a trading job? I mean, that was a ridiculous idea. 
Um, but I just love the challenge. It's easy to say that now, obviously every weekend you think, why am I doing this? <laughs> but, um, but I, I just relish that process of setting up a challenge for yourself and then trying to drag yourself through it. And again, I think an element of that is witnessing my father's challenge and he didn't get that completion, the opposite. And therefore I think deep down, if I keep accepting, whether it's running hundred mile ultramarathons and all the things I used to do as well, um, if I keep doing enough of these, I'll make good that lack of, you know, fulfillment, that unfulfilled ambition that I think he left. Again, I mean, gosh, there are people who inherit much worse traits than, you know, like a terrible cocaine habit or something, you know, for, from a tragedy. And I'm, I think I'm fairly grateful for what I seem to have made out of it. But but I, I so relate to what you've just said. And I had this uncanny similar conversation. So when I was an instructor at Sandhurst, um, I wanted to know about the man I never knew who I was two and a half when he was killed. So I reached out to the Fleet Armed Officers Association and said, anyone knew Commander Paul Perks killed 1964 in Changi, please write to his son, Jonathan, who wants to know more about the man he never knew. I got letters from all over the world from other pilots who'd flown with my father and, and had lovely stories, dark humour, as you know, in the military. Mm. Some of them yeah. dark humour about the fact that the, the wreckage of the buccaneer joined the funeral cortege on the way into the Chinese cemetery by accident because it was the wrong one. They all had to reverse out. It was supposed to be going to the docks. You couldn't make it up. And, and they said, just imagine your father sitting there. But Bill White, who was the navigator who father saved, and also I met the pilot who should have flown the aeroplane, but my father was test flying it to make sure it was oh, safe wow. for his pilots. And this guy said, Jonathan, your father bought my ticket. I said, what do you mean? He said, he died in my airplane. I should yeah. be dead. He should be here now having lunch with you. I said, wow, how yeah. long have you been carrying that? He said, 30 years. So, but Bill said, just like you were mentioning there, he said, Jonathan, you have a choice here, bit of a why in the road. You can be a victim, poor me, dad killed, mum, mm. age 33, brings up three boys on her own. Everything goes wrong in life is because I haven't got a dad. Or mm. you can make your father your inspiration and learn from that and teach other people and find yeah, inspiring yeah. leaders like you to share your stories, which is why we're doing this podcast now, which is going out to mm. 55 countries and 185,000 people. So thank you. I, I really connect with that. You talked about a, a really tough time with father. Um, what, what is in your life so far a highlight, uh, you know, a proudest moment and maybe any other dark moments business wise that you'd talk about what you learned from both of those? Yeah. Um, so, you know, sort of following following that pathway, I I, I was a bit of I, I'm a bit of a contradiction in terms of personality in some ways. So I've never lost that that passion that I described my father had for for just constantly questioning why not and going, you know, being the classic sort of mad inventor entrepreneur um, but I went off to go and join you know big corporation because I also had a slightly overriding sense of I never want to repeat that 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 passion-fueled um, journey and then suddenly realize it's all gone wrong you know I, I, the idea of going and having a crazy idea myself and following it giving up a perfectly, perfectly good day job especially two young kids you know my boys are now 13 and 14 so it's, it's this is a while ago but at the time they were quite young I couldn't imagine a worse scenario that I was putting my family through what had happened to me because I'd had a crazy idea that I thought would be great and it turns out it wasn't and I'm running out of money and why did I ever leave the day job? So that was an enormous inhibition to going and going alone. And yet I had all the drive to go and do that. I've done more and learned more and grown more as a human being in the last four years than I did in the 16 years I was an oil trader. I mean, hell, I used to get on planes to Libya and Mozambique, Turkmenistan, Russia, broken deals with all sorts of interesting people. You know, it wasn't boring and it paid very well, but actually I was, yes, being entrepreneurial in a box, but that box was contained within the confines of a large corporate organization mm. and I never felt quite right. 
I never felt like it was me. I was always jostling up against the edges of it. Um, so, I mean, I had a great success. I mean, just as a, as a little offshoot here, I, I arguably generated a more innovative thing than a jet suit when I, in my time there. Again, driven by this un, under, underlying passion, I discovered that you could track all the world's shipping using a system called AIS, the Automatic Identification System. Every big ship has a transponder and a receiver, and it's a way to stop them hitting each other. But what no one realized at the time was that they also contained the destination and origin information, all unencrypted. And so I realized through a third-party company that this was out there. Nobody in the commodity world realized it. So I borrowed about 30,000 US dollars out of willingly out of my boss's uh, budget. Um, he said, do all this in your free time because this is probably a waste of time and I don't really know what you're talking about. Uh, but again, I, I got that feeling there could be something fun in this and I'm not sharing the countless failures before then. But um, essentially, I turned that $30,000 into half a billion in nine months because it turned out we could predict every single commodity flow going in the world about a week ahead of everybody else. So whether it was jet fuel cargoes coming out of the Gulf of Mexico or gasoline flows into uh, the US from Europe, all of it, I could just literally show everybody the globe. And I printed out a little URL back in the days. This is like 15, 20 years ago now or something. Um, and stuck it all on the trading floor desks in Broadgate in London. And everybody came in in the morning, wondered what this funny little thing was, typed it in back in the day when you did that. And this map lit up and suddenly just showed them the world that they couldn't have seen before. And it went all viral across our organization. And I ended up hanging out with Lord Brown at the time, our CEO, quite famous CEO then, and uh, even addressing and replaying how ship incidents happen and things like that. Anyway, that, if, not anything, if anything, just further emboldened my passion for this. But I mean, so yeah. that was a big win. But, but I, I would say I didn't have, you know, I constantly felt like there was this thing I was going to do at some point. I guess like, you know, musicians or uh, sports people who constantly feel like they're going to get the big win, the big break, the, you know, the big record deal. I, I almost felt like that, but I didn't know what it was and I didn't know whether it was ever going to happen, but I just felt uncomfortable the whole time uh, in that corporate setting. And now I've arrived and I've sort of validated you know, <laughs> with everything we've done. And uh, yeah, it's a really weird second life, second career in a way. So yeah, yeah I don't know if that answers the question. It, it does. It does. And, and how do you make sure you get your work-life balance right, that your wife and your kids get to see you and you're not so obsessed with the day job, you become a workaholic? Yeah, that was a challenge. I mean, anybody who's an entrepreneur, anybody who's struck it out by themselves knows that this is a real difficulty. And you're, you're, you realise quite quickly that if you were 23 and with no dependence, it would be a lot easier just to keep sleeping on the sofa and work all the hours because that's what it takes to do this. Um, I just used to work during the night. I'd come home from a trading job. You know, I'd, I'd had a very long commute, but I'd just work all night, get testing ready for the weekend, drag my family out to the farmyard and uh, do testing and probably break everything and then question my sanity and then get back up again and keep going. It was difficult. It was quite an interesting transition for my wife to observe because she sort of knew me as, yes, a long, hard, hour-working you know corporate employee but then suddenly i'm here pursuing this thing that appears to have no real commercial point but um to, to her credit she never stopped me she always supported me but she did ask me a lot of tricky questions and she just had to kind of keep faith in me but it was difficult because of the background i described mm. I, I was running on fumes in terms of my own inner confidence of what the hell i was doing um so every time we had a setback and stuff you know it was very very hard it was you know it, the, the, the milestones of, of validation, if you like. I remember when we launched, um, we did a big public launch with Wired and Red Bull. Both those brands, I thought, you know, manifested our spirit entirely. You know, Red Bull, you can put a Red Bull helmet on, do anything stupid. And actually it's like, oh, that's, you know, great, you know, milestone for humanity. And I love the, I love the brand. They're a wonderful bunch of people. I'm not sure about the drink, but anyway, I didn't say that. Um, 
uh, the uh, whereas uh, Wired is kind of cool tech and you know respectable, interesting, pioneering Boston Dynamicsy kind of stuff. And they both did an amazing film, and we launched. And when that film launched, oh my god, I remember I was in the US on a business trip, and I, I was literally pretty emotional watching the film because mm. it just hit the nail on the head with that upstanding, not stupid, not like the guy's wasting his time trying to blow himself up in his garage. There's actually a really important moment here. Maybe for humanity, maybe that's a bit over the top, but they 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 had this wonderful strong message. And I realized that was the first notch in a whole series of these of going, no, it's okay. You know, this is, this is good. And this isn't a waste of time or stupid or anything like that. And so, um, yeah, yeah, that well, was a well, well done. No, I mean, it, very exciting. And, and you've learned a lot from your successes, from your failures, when things don't work and you have to tweak it, the setbacks are hard, but you, you learn things from them. That moment when you were 15 and your father killed himself it is seminal in your life. If you were, went back to the 16-year-old Richard Browning, knowing what you know now, and I think you're about 42 now, if I'm guessing, um, what bit of advice would you give the young 16-year-old Richard about this matters, really that focus on that, but don't worry about these kind of things. What bit of advice would you give to a young man knowing what you know now? Yeah, it's, it's funny. My, my grandmother was a very sensible, um, very, very experienced, very worldly person. Um, she often used to look quizzically at me and ask me just to, you know, stop thinking so much, stop worrying so much, stop kind of, you know, I, I'm the only thing that really calms me down is going for a nice long run with a dog or, the, or my kids or whatever. Um, my brain is pretty kind of restless. Um, and I guess, I think I was a bit like this before anyway, but, but it got worse, you know, obviously with what happened. I constantly scenario plan, analyze. I mean, it's stood us in very good stead because I'm, you know, we're pretty good at events because we constantly look at everything possible that could go wrong and try and cover it off. You know, it's like sort of military mission planning almost. Um, but my grandmother used to look at me and go, look, you know, just just turn your brain off for a minute. Stop thinking, stop worrying about stuff. Stop, you know, thinking through things. So maybe I could give my 16-year-old self that kind of advice, but I think I would have ignored it. And I think I would agree to ignore it because actually by properly thinking through and imagining and scenario planning, and agonizing over stuff in a way not to an unhealthy degree i don't think but it's it's got me all the successes i've enjoyed i mean i i've done an awful lot in a 20 odd years uh in a variety of fields and actually i think actually it's only come through relentlessly planning and organizing my thoughts and trying to think around problems and so yeah i find that a really weird one because I don't know what I would say because I'd worry if I say to my 16 year old self, don't worry, it's going to work out really great. We've got a really nice house. Everything's paid off. We're doing really good by the time you're 40. Just chill out. I don't think I've then achieved that. I mean, you've got into a whole back to the future problem of have I now, uh, you know, disturbed the future destiny or not? <laughs> I think that's, that's um, very true. No, I, I, like, I like that. I like that. Let's go around very quick fire around the inspiring leadership compass. This is some of the research we did about what makes high performing individuals and teams. What are the ingredients of it? Um, that ultimate thing we're always looking for, what makes the difference? MQ is the first one, your moral quotient, your values, your principles, what you live by. What are your top three foundational values you still live by, Richard? And they, they stand you in good stead today. Yeah, gosh, I, I mean, I don't know about top three, but I mean, what I will say is that I went through my trading career with a determination that unlike some of the trading commodity world where you get a critical mass of people who, to be blunt, enjoy screwing each other over. So everybody's just out for themselves and no one helps anybody else. It's very adversarial, kind of like the public would probably view trading generally. Actually, there are markets where, if in doubt, you know what, somebody's in trouble, they really need a cargo or something or they're going to stock out the refinery and it's going to cost literally hundreds of millions or tens of millions. 
you'll help them. You won't try and screw them over the last guy with the cargo to help them out. You're not just going to hold them over a barrel. Yes, you'll make some good money out of it, but you know what? You probably need them in three weeks time when your one shuts down, maybe. I am proud that I went through my entire career and we've carried on with this principle in gravity where even if we disagree, even if it doesn't work out, even if we don't follow through with some piece of work because it just doesn't all line up, we depart as friends as, uh, you know, on good terms. I am delighted by people who reach out that I remember dealing with like 15 years ago on some Norwegian, you know, pet chems deal. And they go, oh, I really enjoyed it. In fact, I just had one guy recently uh, in the storage business. I used to have great fun with him and uh, we did business. We parted on doing business when we did more business again. But he's come bowling back in and, you know, reminding me of all the fun times we used to have. And he was just a, you know, a, a contact. I'd like to think there are no people out there that we have ever or I have ever left on bad terms. There is one or two people who blatantly took advantage of a situation. This happens to us all um, where, where they didn't follow those rules. And then I burned them to the ground. There was somebody who I got removed from the entire industry because they stood right in front of me publicly within our industry and said, no, I'm going to screw you over. I don't care. I've got the opportunity. So I just said, right, we'll do it. I'll pay the price, but I'm going to remove you from the industry because, you know, so I, I do have a sort of DEFCON 4 level, which has only been used about half a dozen <laughs> times in my life. So I would say that has not that bit. I'm, I'm disappointed in myself when that is required, but I, I am a huge believer in this idea that we can all get along, find common ground. And even if we don't do business, we can, all agree to disagree and it's all friends i think life is too short to go wading around in a in a dragon's den type or not dragon's den what's the um uh, alan sugar uh, you know tv show where they sort of the apprentice kind of glam- the apprentice yeah. yes where they sort of glamorize the idea that you're not a businessman unless you're screwing and stabbing people in the back and whatever i hate that the world does not work like that at all and if it did we'd all be the poorer so i think that's yeah. my number one two and three to be honest that's great. And, and then from MQ to PQ, meaning and purpose, what gives, what question gives your life meaning and purpose? Why do you do what you do? What's your vocation? What's your calling? You've talked on this a bit, but I'd love to hear it yeah. in a sentence or two. I, I, it is really interesting because I'm sort of getting to a stage where, you know, as I'm handing more and more of our business over to different divisions and, and scaling, if you like, um, it is putting the ball back in my court going, okay, what do I really want to do? And I, I've experienced so much around the world. I mean, we've got in C7 teams and gone to Middle Eastern countries in the middle of COVID with our vehicles and done demos. I mean, this is stuff that even Tom Cruise doesn't. Oh, and I've met him. I chat him every now and then. I mean, you know, we, I, it boggles my mind when I describe some of the stuff that um, that we've done around the world. And some of it's in the Taking on Gravity book as well, which uh, went out recently. But um, therefore, what, what what is there left in a way that, that I want to go and do? And actually, I'll tell you what it is. And it, it is still that spark of a process where you go, you know what? Could we make this system, that's the prototype sitting looking a mess over there, um, could we make the latest system start up in 15 seconds? Um, can, can we make it lift another 50 kilos? Can we make it uh, even easier to fly? Can we um, make it so you've got a really powerful, interesting FOD cover system, you know, filtering all the rubbish that comes up when you're maybe flying in the jungle next week in Brazil? Maybe we're doing that. You know, there is a 3D printed prototype system, for instance, that can make the engines breathe better. You know, I love that process of going, well, I wonder if that's possible. We built an electric version recently. Uh, everybody said we couldn't do it. Well, guess what? We did it and we launched it and flew it publicly for the first time publicly. Um, didn't even test it in testing. We just flew it publicly uh, only a few feet off the ground at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And I love that process. That's what I think really gets me going. It's when people say it probably can't be done and we go, you know what? I reckon we might be able to have a good shot at it. So I think it's that. I never want to lose sight of that, really. And I don't think I ever will. 
we'll always be experimenting and tinkering and trying to bust convention. Uh, that's great. And then the, the third one round, leading on from what gives your life meaning and purpose, you touched on it. Uh, I'm a long distance runner as well. I, I, yeah. My only claim to fame is holding the world record for the Cyprus Double Mountain Marathon, which was, you probably oh. remember, the people run up and down Trudos. Um, oh, congratulations. Yeah, it was a crazy thing to do. Um, much older now at 60. But when I was a young man and in my 20s, I did that with the Scots Guards. Um, but you, health-wise, have clearly made it, key to you what what advice would you give for physical fitness and what about your mental fitness particularly when you're an entrepreneur who's always thinking and planning and scenario planning what's your top tips on those two yeah i mean i think if you're if you're blessed with half decent biomechanics um where you can run it's hard to beat that and you're going to be clearly biased in this as well by the sounds of it i mean you know wherever i travel i mean 35 countries of gravity and, and another 20 odd different ones with uh, bp before then um, I've always packed my trainers. There's only one country in the world and, uh, where I didn't go and break all the rules and just go running. Even in Libya, in Gaddafi's day, I went out for a run and got followed by the secret police. But anyway, um, I, I just find running is the best. It takes no equipment. It's the most bang for your buck in terms of time. You can wear yourself out very quickly if you wish to. You can see the countryside. There is a load of science around how that rhythmic or body encompassing act activity flushes your brain calms your brain activity that's kind of a big one for me so i think mentally and physically that i i still do that a lot um not really competitively anymore just don't get the time um i used to do loads of calisthenics training that sort of like like flags and muscle ups and sort of made famous by things like instagram with people half my age doing all sorts of you know exotic things i used to do that as well which was a nice benefit you know a nice addition from an upper body point of view and and some of the inspiration behind believing i can do this you know fly like this um uh, you know, all the leaning on bars and things like that. Although, you know, like I say, we've, even my 14-year-old can do it now. It's really not difficult, but that was part of the inspiration behind it. So, yeah, I'd say running is the obvious answer, really. Yeah, and same with that one. Um, before I go on, with we'll talk more about this because there's something else. I just want to check with you, and I don't want to um, underplay this. You, you've written a book, yes? Is that right? Yes, Taking on Gravity. Taking yes, on Gravity. Uh, is it on Amazon? Can I give a link to it? Every everywhere yes it's gone okay. everywhere now. okay yes, well i'll make sure I, I make sure i promote that on on the website it'll be on there but um i'm thinking back to uh, general james bashel who's in the parachute regiment he and i did airborne training together and um now we're uh, approaching 60 his um the head of the pt corps because he's the colonel commandant said okay so now you're 60 beware of junk miles you know he and i have spent our lives running see so because when we get to our age now we've got to be a bit careful because it's quite inflammatory particularly the long distances you've mm. done ultra and you know the mountain marathons i used to do uh, and so i think there comes a time when i've now switched across to hit training um mm. and then cross trainer you know the old cross trainer so it's less jarring on my old bones as i get older but when you're young and full of full of verve at 42 in, you in can in still my, run. my young 42 yeah yeah, yeah you can no, still run. I, I think mixing it up, you know, and yes, as you, as, as you get older, I think mixing it with things like swimming and stuff is great, yeah, right? Just yeah, so, so, yeah. Exactly. And I don't really advocate from a health point of view, pounding out many hundreds of miles. I do think all you're doing is weeding out weaknesses in your biomechanics and eventually you'll yeah. find them and eventually you'll wear those out. Yeah. Um, so, yes, you're very right. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And what about mental health? You know, because you've got so much ideas and things going on, travel, uh, jet lag, um, you know, back time with the, the boys mm. and, and your wife. What do you do to keep yourself mentally healthy? Yeah, as I say, I think I think a big part of it is running, but also spending lots of time with the family, doing stuff with my kids. I mean, it's great as the boys, you know, 13, 14, there's lots of 
I think it's a lovely age because they still want to hang around with you just about. Um, and we do things like, I mean, my eldest, my eldest is a bit like me. He's not really interested in any conventional. Uh, we were doing um, bronze smelting. So basically a load of fire bricks, a load of charcoal and lilo pump, metal tube, blow loads of air in, get it very hot, crucible, melt down various metals, including bronze and mix aluminium and copper and all sorts and then cast it very crudely. Uh, I mean, he's just delighted in that because what, what, who's not to like it? A 14 year old boy. I mean, it's, you know, it's molten metal, the possible risk of mortal danger. I mean, not really, but um, yeah. So things like that, um, you know, taking things apart with my, with my youngest, um, going for bike rides with them, dog walks with them and stuff. I think that's really nice. I mean, that, that gives you a nice grounding. It is a challenge alongside everything else going on, but yeah. I think it's a criti critical part of it. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, I'll just do a couple more and then we'll wrap up with your two minute top tip. Um, resilience, RQ, a resilience quotient. How have you picked yourself back up when things haven't worked out? What's your tip on resilience against adversity and things not working as you'd hope they would? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so easy to talk about this when you're not faced with that horrible setback. Um, I, I often try and sort of engender the, that kind of wartime spirit and I pick your war. But I, I'm always very impressed by how humans behave um, when faced with setbacks in a sort of military context. You know, I am deeply inspired by they're often special forces stories and things like that, where everything is telling you you've had it right. As in you can't make it, you can't get across the border, you can't, you know, you and your team aren't going to make it. And yet you have a little pause, think about yourself for a minute and then go. But yeah, but we're still going to have a go. I love that ethos. I mean, I just wish I could bottle that. So whenever we. I mean, you know, the famous exercise, the quite famous exercise, most people in the world seem to have seen where we were, it was me actually flying it, the Royal Marines exercise onto the onto HMS Tamar, the um, offshore patrol vessel flying off the rib. The night before we did that week worth of exercises, we were testing and we got this phantom bug in the code and they were engines were shutting down left, right and centre. It was, you know, midnight. We hadn't even packed. We were leaving at four in the morning. Everything was pointing to like, I, I was literally toying with the idea of phoning up, just saying, look, I'm really sorry for all the months of work on this. I, we're going to have to postpone it. Uh, and we just kept going, kept working at it. We were just exhausted. It, it, we just didn't really sleep any of that night at all. Everything was saying, this is not going to work. We've had countless events. I mean, we, we've had events where it's like, you know, three minutes to go live on TV in some country with millions of people watching and suddenly something doesn't work. And you just go, this is impossible. And then you go, but we'll still have a go. And, and you just, I think if you can draw inspiration from people who are genuinely facing death <laughs> in, a, in impossible circumstances, you can read up about these kind of things in lots of places. That puts into context your slide pack having failed, you know, before Monday's meeting or something like that, right? There are most, there are many scenarios that were worse than what feels impossible at that moment to us, you know? So I think putting it into context is really helpful like that. I think it's so, so true. Uh, two questions and then we'll do the two minute top tip legacy. And then we're going to talk about a book. Um, what's your legacy? What would we like your legacy to be both personally for your family, but also in what you've done in the world when sadly the time comes that the only certainty we do have that we can't plan for is that we'll definitely die. Um, what would you like your legacy to be? So, I mean, it, it's very flattering when some people and I genuinely, you know, I never use these words although I am now, but um, I, I, it's very flattering when people kind of position what we've done on the sort of timeline of, you know, man dreaming to fly like the birds and, you know, the Wright brothers and Da Vinci dreaming about human flights and things like that. I mean, look, 
you know, we're lurking around somewhere. We're not going to revolutionize human transport anytime soon, but maybe it'll, it'll be the inspiration in the coming years behind something more mainstream. But it is quite humbling to think that, gosh, you know, I think we have created one of the human flight milestones on the journey humanity's on. So that's pretty cool. But actually, I'm almost more passionate about using it as a inspiration. When you land at a school and the kids all gather around, they lose their minds, right? They're not looking at iPhones and iPads anymore for at least five minutes. Um, that leads them just asking the most amazing questions, but also adults as well. It makes those if I may say, you know, older members of the community in corporates and, and, you know, the public sector sit up a minute and go, actually, geez, I didn't think that was possible. Maybe, maybe our little challenges inside our organization maybe are, are more surmountable. And actually, if they spend a few minutes listening to our way we go about innovation, if that has a couple of percentage effect on how people are more nimble and actually progressing, I'm so passionate about that. In a post-Brexit world, particularly in the UK, we have to get better at this nimble have an idea test the hell out of it fail quickly if you need to as long as it doesn't damage your safety reputational financial you know security and then do it again and keep doing it and keep doing it do not hound out risk do not eliminate all risk if you do you guarantee existential risk in about five years time that whole thing i am very passionate about and i think everybody is and it's how we solve everything whether it's climate change or inequality in society it is innovation everything every time we Ever since we decided to be farm, you know, farmers instead of hunter-gatherers, we're on that technology bandwagon and there's no going back. So the more efficient and the better we get at it, the better we're all going to be. Fantastic. Before your top tip, um, books. You've just written a great book on, on all your experiences and your stories. What else um, is a book you've read in the last couple of years that you go, that's a really good book. I'd recommend that to, to the people listening. Any, any book that you'd um, draw inspiration from? So I, I slightly cheat here now. I, I, I'm a mildly dyslexic person, so therefore the Me book too. writing thing. Me thing. too. Yeah. Oh, oh, there we go. Yeah. So, so the, the, the book writing process, which was a, a collab between me and a ghostwriter, they, they structured it and I filled in all the bits because it didn't sound like me. Otherwise, it didn't have all the technical stuff in it. That was very painful. And then to make it even worse, then reading my own book, because um, there's an audio book as well of the same thing. Oh, my goodness. That was tough, especially the, reading the bits about my father as well. That was really hard oh, work. God, but uh, yeah. anyway... Yeah, I did. I did. Wasn't that that came out of nowhere? I didn't realize that was going to be so hard to read what I was already familiar with. But anyway, um, but in terms of other people's books, yes, I'm actually listening to an audiobook, really good audiobook now, um, because I don't get really much time to actually read. Running and listening to a book is a super efficient mm -hmm, mm -hmm. option. Um, I'm reading a great or oh, listening to a great book at the moment. I forget the author though, but it's all about sleep. Uh, oh my oh, god, it's why, quite, why it's we quite, sleep, Matthew Walker? I think it is, yes, yes. he's very good. Uh, Oh my goodness. And it's quite shocking. So probably most of the people listening to this need to read that because it's not really a negotiable thing. You've got to try and get more sleep than most of us get because it's quite catastrophic by the looks of it. And I haven't even finished it yet. Correct. I, I won't stay. I won't stay up late listening to it because it's <laughs> no. self-defeating. Well, that, that was very, very impressive. It's so lovely to hear that. So you are, you and I both are what we describe as neurodiverse is the nice word for it. Uh, Guy Hans, who I had on the podcast on Monday, uh, who is a very successful private equity uh, founder. Uh, he is as well, and a number of the leaders that I come across. And so I completely become obsessive about listening to audiobooks. I actually, like you, read my own, but God, people said it was a bit stilted because, of course, I was trying, trying to read and speak at the same time. I think I just have to chat about it. You know, perhaps, perhaps your next book, just talk. I don't have any oh. script. 
You know. Oh, I, so I absolutely prefer live. I, I would love it. You know, I don't, wouldn't care if this is live to millions of people. Please live. If you ask me to remember anything, even like your intro, to be honest, my brain just goes. Yeah, frozen. yeah, me I, too. I, yeah. I, I, I can do any keynotes you like. I just talk to the pictures and, and I just listen to what comes out. If you are, yeah. I could never be an actor if you're asking me to not ad lib. Yeah, it'd be yeah. a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. No, I relate to that. So, so lovely. And and I've listened to about I suppose two hundred audiobooks in the last three years on everything from neuroscience to leadership. Very good book, 10% Human. Do you realize you're 90% microbes and everything oh, that yeah. goes on in your gut, the microbiome, fascinating about everything. And, and the other book is The Circadian Code, which is about your sleep. And I do intermittent fasting, uh, uh, 16 oh, yeah. hours of fasting, eight hours of, of eating. It makes a huge oh, difference. Yeah. Stressing a system every now and then, whether it's temperature or running or indeed fasting, I think that really is nice to keep recalibrating you. Correct. Yeah, I agree. Correct. Mm. Correct. So let's go for now. Um, if you just briefly introduce yourself again, Richard, say who you are, what you do, and then give us your two minute top tip. This will be the end of this. And uh, we'll just have two minutes chat at the end when we finish recording, but it'll also be used as an intro. So, Richard, please introduce yourself. My name is Richard Browning. I'm the founder and chief test pilot from Gravity, and we build and fly these thousand horsepower jet suits. Do you want me to do my top tip? Please, yeah. Yeah, be great. Yeah. My top tip, I think, really is about innovation. It's a word I've come to not actually enjoy because I think it is beaten around too much by people. But in summary, the way we go about pursuing relentless better, which is, I think, what my definition of innovation would be, is the following. Have an idea, often almost a childlike inspired idea, looking at the world in a different way. Identify how you can test that idea as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible, and then go relentlessly after it. And there is a critical extra rule, which is that innovation is all about risk. It's about things that fail and break and don't work. All you've got to do is make sure that when that failure occurs, it is survivable from a safety, obviously, safety point of view, a reputation point of view, and a financial perspective. If it passes those tests, get on, keep iterating, and after you've done about 100 of those, you'll make a breakthrough no one ever imagined. Fantastic. Richard, thank you very much for being on the series. Stay on the line. We'll just have two minutes chat mm. at the end, but really inspirational. And congratulations in all that you've achieved and good luck in the future. Thank you very much. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <laughs>